70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. I am Samuel Mukasedi Nsinga, a regular listener of KBS World Radio. I am sending this video message from a university campus in Nantes, France. Congratulations on KBS World Radio's 70 years of service. I believe you have been very successful in promoting Korea to the rest of the world. I also thank you for selecting me as one of your official monitors. I fell in love with Korea thanks to your channel. It was around 2012 or 2013 when I first caught a shortwave broadcast from KBS World Radio. I was only 9 or 10 years old. The fact that I could hear about Korea, the country of morning calm, in my home country of Cameroon, near the equator back then, is just amazing and beautiful. I wish the staff and the listeners of KBS World Radio all the best. See you. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Monday, the 23rd of October, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. President Yoon Suk-yeol held summit talks with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on day two of his state visit to Saudi Arabia as the two countries signed deals worth $15.6 billion. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. The National Assembly recently passed a controversial bill allowing mothers to give birth anonymously in order to tackle the issue of unregistered newborns. We'll hear from opposing views on this new law for our in-depth today. And coming up for Monday Sports Roundup, we have the latest from the baseball playoffs, the final stretch of the Football K-League, and the start of the new basketball season. Let's begin for 24. The leaders of South Korea and Saudi Arabia held summit talks in Riyadh on Sunday and discussed economic cooperation, regional security and other issues. On the occasion of the summit, the governments and businesses of the two countries signed 51 new memoranda of understanding and contracts worth $15.6 billion or 21.1 trillion won, building on previous investment deals. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio now Kim Min-kyung, our Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service. In-kyung, hello. Hello, chang so President Yun Sung-yeol is on a state visit to Saudi Arabia and held summit talks with Crown Prince and Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman at the Al-Yamama Palace on Sunday. So what was the objective of the visit and what did they discuss? Well, Saudi Arabia is building a massive eco-friendly smart city called Naom in the desert and mountainous areas adjacent to the Red Sea, which will encompass residential, industrial and tourist zones. The project is worth $500 billion, and South Korean companies have joined in the bidding for $25 billion worth of projects. Yoon requested that the Saudi government help South Korean companies participate in mega-development projects, including NAOM. 
Prince Mohammed reportedly said that his country will develop substantial cooperation with South Korea in various areas. After the meeting, companies and institutions of the two countries signed some 50 contracts and memoranda of understanding worth some 21 trillion won or 15.6 billion U.S. dollars. The deals cover a wide range of sectors, including hydrogen energy, crude oil, food and medical products. That's on top of the $29 billion in existing MOUs and contracts signed during the Crown Prince's visit to Seoul last November, 60 percent of which have led to concrete projects. Meanwhile, crude was also on the summit agenda as the two leaders paid close attention to its supply and demand as concerns grow over rising global oil prices due to the ongoing armed conflict between Israel and Hamas. Can you tell us more? Yes, the state-run Korea National Oil Corporation and Saudi Arabia's national oil giant, Saudi Aramco, agreed to create a joint crude oil reserve of 5.3 million barrels at a storage facility in the South Korean city of Ulsan by 2028. Aramco will transfer the oil for storage at KNOC's Ulsan base, and in the event of an oil shortage in South Korea, KNOC will receive priority in purchasing from the stockpile. Anything else we should know about? On the Israel-Hamas war, the leaders agreed that a deterioration in the humanitarian situation must be prevented. And according to the presidential office, discussions on large-scale defense industry cooperation are also in their final stages. Moving on to domestic political news now. The ruling People Power Party, which had been reeling from a crushing defeat in the by-election for chief of Seoul's Gangsa district earlier this month, uh, they've appointed In Yohan as the chairman of the party's Innovation Committee. Uh, our regular listeners might know him also as Dr. John Linton. He is a medical school professor. He's also the nation's first special naturalised citizen. He's also been a regular panel uh, panellist on our show as well. Uh, In Yohan, can you tell us more about him? Yes, PPP leader Kim Gyeon announced the appointment at a Supreme Council meeting on Monday. Kim said in who is a Yonsei University College of Medicine professor whose American name is John Linton, has a discerning eye and insight on easing regionalism and achieving national unity. Earlier, the PPP decided to stick with its leader but form an innovation committee which will instill reform in the party following the by-election defeat. Kim said he will give in full authority over the committee. In is a great-grandson of 19th-century U.S. missionary Eugene Bell and became a special naturalized citizen in 2012 for his contributions to the country. The same year, he served as deputy chief of the National Unity Committee under former President Park Geun-hye's transition team. He was born and raised in South Jeolla province, which is a traditional stronghold of the liberal opposition. After the appointment, in said the party has to change everything except for one's wife and children. On the other side of the aisle, Democratic Party Chairman Lee Jae-myung returned to party duties on Monday after recuperating from his hunger strike. So, what were his, return- what were his words on the first day of his return? He urged President Yoon Song-yeol to fully reform state affairs, including a complete cabinet reshuffle. At a Supreme Council meeting, he said, a public, he said public livelihoods, the economy and national security are under threat from the government and ruling party's incompetence and irresponsibility. He said a mass resignation of the cabinet would be a pivotal way to confirm the government's sincerity about self-reflection. The DP chief said the government's faults must be judged sternly in next year's general elections in order to resolve public livelihood issues. He also urged his party to come together in solidarity and unity to meet the public's expectations through sufficient reforms, asking that there be no more reference to the parliamentary passage of a motion for his pre-trial detention over corruption last month. This indicates that there will be no disciplinary action for DP lawmakers who joined to pass the motion.
Meanwhile, on Sunday, PPP Chair Kim Gi-hyun offered to meet with E to discuss livelihood issues. Did the DP give a response? Yes, the DP counter-proposed a three-way meeting with President Yoon Suk-yeol and Kim, after which the PPP said it hopes for a forward-looking attitude from the DP. Shifting to other domestic news now, the number of cases of lumpy skin disease, or LSD, among cattle in the country has risen to 17 after the first case was reported last Thursday. Can you tell us more? Yes, according to the Agriculture Ministry on Monday, infections have been confirmed at farms in the provinces of Gyeonggi, South Chungcheong, as well as North Chungcheong. Authorities plan to block further transmission of the virus through vaccinations within a 10-kilometer radius of affected farms through the end of October, with additional shots administered to over 1.2 million cattle in the provinces of Gyeonggi, Chungcheong, and Gangwon. So LSD doesn't affect humans, as I understand. Uh, So why is this uh, a big deal? Can you tell us also about how it's transmitted? As you said, the virus doesn't affect humans and its fatality rate is less than 10%, but it causes fever and skin nodules in cattle, as well as a decrease in milk yields, abortion and infertility, which could lead to an increase in milk and cattle prices. LSD is transmitted by blood-feeding insects such as flies and mosquitoes. And finally, South Korea, the United States and Japan held their first joint aerial exercise on Sunday near the Korean Peninsula. Can you tell us more? Yes, according to Seoul's Defense Ministry, the three nations staged a joint drill in the overlapping section of the air defense identification zones of South Korea and Japan, south of the peninsula. Joint air drills have been held often between Seoul and Washington or between the U.S. and Japan in the skies over or near the peninsula, but not among all three nations. Sunday's trilateral training involved fighter jets from the three nations, including the nuclear-capable B-52H from the U.S., with jets escorting the strategic bomber information. The B-52H was deployed to South Korea last week and landed at a local air base for the first time, in line with the U.S. agreements to strengthen its extended deterrence against North Korea's nuclear threats and to increase the presence of its strategic assets around the peninsula. That's all for our news briefing today. In Young, thank you for those updates. Thanks for having me. On October 6th, the National Assembly passed the Protected Birth Bill. This bill allows pregnant women who believe their circumstances do not allow them to raise children to give birth anonymously. Local governments will then take initial custody of the newborns, then seek adoption or other ways to care for the infants. The new law will take effect from the 19th of July next year, along with the previously passed Birth Notification System Bill, which requires medical facilities to register all children born to South Korean parents. This comes after a state audit earlier this year found more than 2,000 infants born between 2015 and 2022 had not been registered at birth by their parents. Subsequent investigations found that almost 250 were deceased and over 600 had been abandoned. Another 4,000 foreign infants were also unregistered. However, while some are supportive of this legislative approach to addressing the issue of unregistered birth and unwanted pregnancies, others have said it does not tackle the root cause of the issue. To discuss this today, we'll be speaking to two guests back-to-back. 
We'll be speaking to a representative from Human Rights Watch who is critical of the law. But first, we have someone who supports the new law joining us on the line. We have Steve Morrison, founder and president of the Mission to Promote Adoption in Korea. Mr. Morrison, hello and thank you for your time today. Hello, thanks, thanks for inviting me. Can we dive right in? Can you tell us why do you support the new law? Uh, to me, it simply boils down to deciding on whether the right to life is more important or the right to know about their birth record is more important. The protected birth bill passed on October 6th and will be enacted on July 19, 2024, would allow a choice whether a birth mother can choose to remain anonymous by removing her name from the birth record or not. Uh, so let me kind of start with some background on this. Uh, the current law, the special adoption law, was enacted on August 5, 2012. Uh, that requires that all births be registered under birth mother's family registry uh, first before a child can be released for an adoption. And this would provide some form of birth record to remain for returning adoptees that want to search for birth mothers. This law was created mainly to help grown-up adult adoptees returning back to Korea to search for their birth records. And many times there was no record available. So to satisfy their right-to-know demands, the special adoption law was created to give adoptees the uh, access to their birth history. However, this resulted in many unwed mothers choosing to abandon their unwanted babies because they did not want to tie their names to the birth records as many unwed mothers were in their teens and not ready to be mothers. And some were the results of rape and some were from infidelity and most were simply from undesired pregnancies. The babies were abandoned in trash bins, public restrooms, on the street corners, abandoned buildings, and of course, much greater number of them chose abortion to avoid registering their babies into their family registries. So in particular, the average number of babies being surrendered at the baby box jumped sharply from three babies per month to 20 babies a month. And sadly, many babies' lives were lost at the hands of adults. And I believe these tragedies of abandonments and killings of babies could have been avoided had the unwed mothers were given the opportunity to stay anonymous and not fear to have their names associated publicly with unwanted birth records. And this is why I support recently passed uh, protected birth bill, Ingmyung Bohuchusan Jebab, because it gives birth mothers the rights to stay anonymous and reduce the unfortunate incidences of uh, abandonment and some cases murdering the babies. While I support, support the notion that all children should be registered at birth and that adoptee rights to know should be supported, it shouldn't be done at the expense of babies' lives. Instead, we should seek different ways to help the adoptees with their desire to know birth history. Right. So you've mentioned it already, but some say newborns should have the right to know who their parents are. So therefore, an anonymous birth would violate this right. Uh, can you yeah. explain a bit more on your thoughts on yeah. this? I, I certainly agree that children have the right to know who their parents are. But I also agree that babies' lives are at stake for implementing the right to know policy. 
If such a policy brings danger and risks to children's lives, the right to life must supersede the right to know. And what good is the right to know when a baby is no longer around to ask that question? So many babies have been sacrificed because many unwed mothers fear the birth registry of their children under their names. So I believe that a child's life uh, is the most sacred right any human being should have. The law must uh, provide the greatest protection of the weakest and the voiceless humans, such as babies. The right to life for innocent babies should be given a higher priority over an adult adoptee or an orphan his rights to know who his parents or mother is. I personally favor and applaud all the courageous birth mothers that chose to keep their babies and raise them. And the government should provide all it can to help unwed mothers and, or single mothers with counseling and financial assistance needed to raise their children. But foremost, the government in conjunction with several women's rights groups should campaign against negative social stigma that single mothers have and be a voice to bring about positive changes that will create an environment where single women can raise their own children. Another concern that's been raised is that the law could be uh, abused. For instance, a pregnant woman who wants to give birth and keep the child could be compelled to give birth anonymously by her parents or the father of the unborn child under certain circumstances. What would you say to those kinds of concerns? Yes, of course. The parents of unwed mothers usually do not accept their daughters giving birth out of wedlock to do society's negative pressure against not only on the unwed mothers, but the shame the family feels. However, the society is slowly changing its attitude toward the unwed births and single parents by accept, accepting them and their predicaments without being too critical of their daughters giving birth out of wedlock. But it will take generation or two to change that. But the change is happening slowly. Hmm. How is the situation different here in Korea compared to perhaps other countries? How is the issue of unregistered births or unwanted pregnancies dealt with uh, elsewhere? And what could be the advantages of the new law in contrast with efforts made in other countries? Yes. Uh, for instance, in the U.S., as soon as a child is born in a family, uh, in the hospital, the baby's registered immediately after birth. And so the BOHO Chulsan uh, Tongboje, you know, notification uh, bill that passed earlier uh, compared to the BOHO Chulsanje, the uh, uh, you know, anonymous uh, bill that was passed uh, shortly after. Uh, they, these two laws need to go hand in hand. They must go together. And so <clears throat> in the U.S., a child is born in hospital and registered immediately after birth. However, there are some mothers who are not able to keep the babies. So they can, if they wish, within 72 hours after birth, they are able to safely surrender the baby through a program called the Baby Safe, baby safe Haven Law, where a woman may take a baby to any fire stations, police stations, clinics, and hospitals with the promise that there will be no questions asked. They use models such as no name, no shame, and no blame to make it easy for birth mothers to give up their baby safely 
rather than to abandon the baby at a risky place. These safe surrender places act pretty much like baby boxes, and it is spread all over the 50 states, uh, many counties within the city states. These children are then taken over by the county governments and kept a period of time for birth mothers to change her mind. And within certain time, the babies are not taken back. The children are then uh, adopted locally. Uh, also in Germany, unwed mothers are mm. given the freedom to stay anonymous after giving birth. Uh, however, their law allows adoptees uh, to request birth information when he or she turns 16. And so they can request that uh, uh, when they turn that age. But also uh, unwed mothers or birth mothers uh, will be contacted every two years to see whether they want to release uh, information or not. In France, the law allows birth mothers in complete anonymity where there is no way for adoptees to request any information Mm. at any time. So I... uh, I I would think that Korea would be somewhere in between, and uh, uh, so so to for them to stay anonymous would be a big plus for them because it will lessen the number of abandoned babies. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. We have to leave it there for this first part of our in-depth today. We've been speaking to Steve Morrison from the Mission to Promote Adoption in Korea. Thank you once again for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Let's turn to part two of our in-depth now. We have joining us uh, Suzanne Songen Bergsten, who is the Senior Women's Rights Coordinator at Human Rights Watch. She has voiced opposition to the new law, which allows women to give birth anonymously. She joins us on the line now. Ms. Bergsten, hello, and thank you for your time today. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. As I mentioned, you have voiced opposition to the Protected Birth Bill. Can you tell us why you are against this new law? Um, I wouldn't say that we're fully against it, but as we stated in our letter that we sent to the members of the National Assembly ahead of the passing of the bill, um, we think that an anonymous birthing system should have been a last resort much like what the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child previously stated um, in their recommendations to South Korea. So um, this legislation does not address the structural problems that must be promptly addressed by the state, such as poverty, inequality, misogyny, among others. Um, So, I mean, this law could be seen as an easy way out of these major human rights problems. Right, so you're saying it should have been a last resort, but perhaps the South Korean government has uh, opted to take up this option uh, too soon. The adoption agencies, which are in favour of the law, say, though, that it can help prevent a number of predicaments uh, that abandoned newborns may suffer. We saw some of the harrowing consequences in the investigation into unregistered newborns, such as illegal adoptions and infanticide. Uh, How do you see this opinion? Well, um, we noticed that the bill, which promotes anonymous births and adoptions um, as solutions to unregistered births and unwanted pregnancies, does really nothing to address the underlying structural issues leading to unregistered births. Um, So 
really to better protect women and children, the government should tackle the underlying reasons as to why there are unregistered births and unwanted pregnancies, which then could lead to child abandonment in the first place. Um, so I think it's really also relevant here to mention that um, South Korean women's and children's rights groups have clearly stated that most of the unregistered births result from patriarchal laws and systems, cultures and socioeconomic conditions. Um, and they've also raised concerns that um, the bill could further facilitate the abandonment of children as the bill privileges giving up a child over other forms of support that might prevent unwanted pregnancies or could allow women and girls who wish to keep their child to do so. So, I mean, yeah, I would also want to mention actually here that the bill also fails to include the registration of children born to immigrant parents who actually made up the majority of all unregistered births in the country. Um, so, yeah, we, we think there are obviously other ways you could have addressed this to better protect women and children. Right. So because you feel it doesn't uh, fully, uh, it doesn't tackle the underlying issues that are associated with this situation, that perhaps the passing of this bill will mean that people uh, will feel that it's resolved and therefore uh, doesn't attack these more uh, deeper issues that you have uh, concerns about, uh, I feel like you're saying. However, despite objections, the bill uh, did pass the National Assembly and the new law will take effect from July next year. But with that in mind then, how would you encourage authorities and policymakers to adopt the law? Are there any changes you would like to see? Well, I think we would hope that the South Korean lawmakers um, address the issues and measures we mentioned in our letter to them. So they can still ensure that women can enjoy their sexual and reproductive rights. Um, they can increase support for single mothers and combat the stigma that single mothers face today, as well as take steps to introduce a universal birth registration system. Um, we also had a range of other recommendations, but I think those are some of the key recommendations. Um, we would also hope, of course, that they would listen more to local children and women's rights organizations who have been working, you know, on providing feedback on the bill before it was passed. And they have also laid out a range of measures, um, some of the ones that I mentioned, um, as ways to better protect women and children in South Korea. And um, I also think it's worth mentioning that South Korea, they're a party to the Convention on the Elimination of all forms, um, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Um, so they have obligations to protect women's socioeconomic rights and autonomy. Um, so really, the next step should be to ensure that women and girls can access, you know, safe and affordable abortions, including making them a covered medical treatment under the National Insurance Plan, um, ensuring comprehensive sexuality education is taught in schools, um, and ensuring that single and young mothers get adequate financial support so that no one feels like they have to give up their child because of because they're financially unable to care for them. Um, and as I mentioned before, to take steps to address the stigma around single motherhood. How would you say the situation compares between South Korea and other countries uh, 
in issues related to uh, things like unregistered births and unwanted pregnancies. Uh, are there any lessons you think Korea can learn from efforts being made in other countries? Um, well, I want to start off to say that we, as Human Rights Watch, we have not analyzed laws or done research on this topic specifically in other countries, so I don't want to make too bold of a statement, but um, what I can tell you is that a lot of other countries do adhere to the international laws and norms around this, um, guaranteeing women's autonomy and ensuring that they can enjoy their sexual and reproductive rights. Um, which not only means, you know, ensuring access to safe and affordable abortions and care, but also includes, you know, ensuring access to contraception and ties into ensuring comprehensive and age-appropriate sex education, sexuality education. Um, all these measures overall would ad- address potential issues around unwanted pregnancies in many ways. Um, but I think also a lot of the international instruments and norms, they do highlight how important it is to have a universal birth registration system so that all children born in the country are registered immediately after birth, regardless of their residence status or the documentation of the child or their parents. Um, so that, together with having a strong child protect- protection system, um, would better protect women and children, and it's maybe something that Korea could um, learn or efforts that they could try to address um, that other countries have. Um, And a few other countries actually do allow allow for anonymous births. So I think France and Austria are two of them, just two examples. Um, But what stands out or when you compare is that they have very strong social and welfare systems. um, And they're also places where women can fully enjoy their sexual and reproductive rights. I think that's also lessons for South Korea to be learned, um, that they should not just adopt this law then in isolation or as an alternative to ensuring other measures and services for women. Um, yeah, but instead ensuring that, um, you know, yeah, as I said, sorry, other, that other measures are implemented so this law is not adopted in isolation. Right. And finally, uh, Ms. Bergston, as a final thought, are there any other concerns that uh, you have that you would like to flag up? But what would you like to say to policymakers and the wider public as well? Um, I think that if you're looking at this from a point of view where you really care and want to protect women and children, you really need to address the underlying structural issues at hand. So don't implement this law in isolation as the sole solution to this problem. South Korea really needs to take steps to guarantee women can enjoy their sexual and reproductive rights, that they have autonomy, that they can freely make decisions about their bodies and make decisions about pregnancies, terminating a pregnancy, having children, even consent for adoption, and just ensuring that no one has to give up their child because they're financially unable to care for them. Um, I think that's my my only comment on this, that there are a lot of other measures that South Korea can adopt to ensure that they can truly protect women and children. We'll leave it there. We've been talking to Suzanne Sungen Bergsten from Human Rights Watch. We appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. 
The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 17.98 points, or 0.76% on Monday, to close at 2,357.02. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, dropping 5.56 points, or 0.72%, to close at 763.69. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 1.31 against the U.S. dollar, closing at 1,353.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have with us in this studio now, Diane Yu, one of our contributors for this segment. Diane, hello. It's great to see you again. Hello, Jango. Let's get straight into the first story. What are we looking at today? These days, the number of drug offenses is on the rise in South Korea. Several high-profile incidents in recent months prompted a surge in public awareness and induced authorities to crack down on the country's drug problem. Yes, there was the actor Lee sung of course, from mm. the Oscar-winning movie Parasite, who was booked today right. on suspected drug use. Yeah, and there was another drug-related incident where a card soliciting liquid marijuana was spotted on a university campus in Seoul. According to Hongin University, on Sunday, advertisements in English that appeared to encourage the purchase of drugs were recently discovered around the College of Fine Arts building. Right, so these are cards, essentially the size of a business card, Mm. scattered around the campus, advertising so-called liquid marijuana, Mm -hmm. but written in English as well, which is quite interesting. What did the card say exactly? On the card, it said, Do you need inspiration? We prepared an innovative product for you, liquid weed. And it stated it's totally legal now. And in order to emphasize, the words liquid weed and legal were all capitalized and written in green. The paper had a QR code engraved on the back along with a phrase explaining the hallucinogenic effects and the message, contact me while it's still legal. Wow, so they made no attempt to hide what they were trying to sell. It's uh, quite brazen, all. really. Mm. Uh, you said the card said this liquid weed is legal. Mm. But nothing could be further from the truth, right? Yeah. Under the current Narcotics Control Act, smoking or ingesting cannabis is illegal except for medical purposes. Article 3, Paragraph 7 of the same act prohibits the export, import, manufacture, sale or brokerage of the sale of cannabis other than those approved by the Minister of Food and Drug Safety as prescribed by presidential decree. It's also illegal to widely publicize or provide information about activities prohibited by law to others through advertisement such as leaflets. So it's definitely illegal. Definitely. How is the school dealing with this incident? A university official said that the school was aware that the advertisements were posted everywhere the day before and has been collecting the cards since then. He went on to explain that they're not sure if drugs are actually sold on sites open through QR codes, and the student council is informing students to be careful through messenger apps and online communities. The university said it had also reported this incident to the police. Yes, we've already talked on the show in recent months about concerns over rising drug use in the country. So it's concerning that we're seeing something so brazen like this. Mm. I would 
like to hope that this is just some sort of misguided prank because yeah, it hopefully. sounds so ludicrous that anyone would try to sell drugs like right, this. But right. uh, we'll see what the police investigation uncovers. Hmm. Let's continue on to our second story now. What do you have for us? This summer, parts of the Seoul metropolitan area came under attack by swarms of in- uh, insects named love bugs, with citizens complaining about inconveniences. And just as we thought that the season of those bugs was over, another type of insect is infesting the trees in the city. In this year's autumn season, fall webworms are being spotted throughout parks in downtown Seoul. Okay, so just to describe what these creepy crawlies look like, fall webworms, they look like caterpillars, but they are covered in long white hairs standing on end, Mm. uh, and they eventually become a type of a hairy moth as Mm -hmm. well. And the government has now issued a warning regarding the appearance of the full webworm, right? Yeah. At the end of August, the Korea Forest Service raised the outbreak forecast level from level 1 to 3, which is from attention to alert. The agency explained that the level has been raised as the density of the fall webworm is increasing nationwide, including in Gyeonggi, North Chungcheong and North Gyeongsang and North Cheolla provinces. This is the first time that the level has been raised since the insect was first spotted in Korea in 1958. Okay, so why is the increased number of full webworms a problem? Uh, as you mentioned, commonly mistaken for a caterpillar, it's a pest that eats the leaves of broadleaves trees. And the problem is that they cause damage, especially to street trees, landscape trees, and fruit trees in agricultural areas. According to a survey by the Korea Forest Service, the damage rate caused by the insect more than doubled from 12% last year to 28% this year. And that number could increase again in the near future. Do we know the reason why the number of their population increased, particularly this year? Experts say that although it's difficult to attribute the increase in population solely to the abnormal climate, they do believe that this year's high fall temperature may have had an effect. Mm, right. So like the love bugs, they are not harmful to people, but they are um, quite uncomfortable to look at, especially because there seem to be so many of them. Yeah. And they do cause harm to trees. Mm. So expect authorities to try and take measures to reduce their numbers. Let's uh, continue on to our last story of the day. What else do you have for us? Belugas are cute, beautiful, and smart cetaceans that capture the hearts of anyone who sees them in an aquarium. However, whether it's ethically right to keep them on display in a uh, confined space has been one of the heated debates. And whether to release one particular beluga back into the sea is an issue that has been raised in one aquarium in Seoul as well. Yes, this is an issue that dates back years, right? For around a decade, Jamsil Lotte World Aquarium is home to a white and smooth beluga named Bella, about four meters long. However, it's also the scene of conflict between Lotte World and civic groups. Activists from the marine environment group Hot Pink Dolphins were sued by the theme park business after holding a protest demanding the release of belugas at the end of last year. Right, so what was the reason for the civic group's uh, protest? Domestic and foreign civic groups have repeatedly pointed out the problem of the inhumane capture and export of the creature, saying that baby belugas are being forcefully captured and sold around the world for exhibition purposes. In addition, it's pointed out that for belugas, which have the characteristics of uh, diving up to tens of meters at a time, living in a water tank only 7.5 meters deep is no different from living in a prison. I believe the aquarium has said that efforts are being made to release Bella, 
but it hasn't happened yet. Unfortunately, no. After being under fire, the theme park business announced that it would release Bella in October 2019. However, the problem is that it's not really easy to immediately return a beluga, which was captured as a child and has little memory of being in the wild, to its original habitat. The aquarium has been trying to send back Bella to a sanctuary for belugas, but the move had been halted due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And recently, they posted a sign saying that Bella is going through the final stage of preparation to be sent out to the ocean. Because the situation has been dragging on for so long, people have become sceptical of Mm. the theme park's intentions. But hopefully they will come through so that uh, Bella can have the chance for a more freer and meaningful life. Right. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Next up, it's our weekly sporting fix. It's time now for Monday Sports Roundup. And providing us with the updates is sports reporter Yu Ji Ho from the United News Agency. Jiho, hello. It's great to have you back. Oh, yeah, it's great to be here, too. So we kick things off this week with baseball because the KBO postseason is in full swing now. And then the first round series, the NC Dinos took the first game over the SSG Landers on the road on Sunday afternoon. The second game is taking place as we speak. But Jiho, can you recap for us how the Dinos got it done in the opening contest? Yeah, so the Dinos knocked off the Dusan Bears in the wildcard round last Thursday to get to this point, and then won the first game Sunday by 4-3, to pretty much the same way that they won the wildcard game, which is with some timely hitting from unlikely sources. And this time it was pinch hitter Kim Jong-wook delivering a two-run homer in the eighth inning. They broke the scoreless deadlock against Cuban starter for, for the Landers, uh, Renis Elias. And Elias and his counterpart, Shin Min-hyuk, traded zeros uh, for seven innings, actually. Shin going five and two-thirds, shutout, and Elias going seven scoreless before giving, giving up the home run in the top of the eighth. Um, so it was a pretty fast-paced game. Both starting pitchers very efficient, uh, limiting some damage. And then the Dinos, uh, you know, bring a guy off the bench, and he delivers on the swing on the first pitch, hitting the homer to eventually deliver the victory for the Dinos. Mm. Now, with the Landers, they only managed to run after putting runners on second and third in the bottom of the eighth inning, right after giving up the two-run uh, homer. And then the Dinos got the two insurance runs, insurance runs in the top ninth with some key hits and a couple of steals. And those two runs all counted because the Landers, Ha Jae-hoon, he did a two-run shot off Dinos closer Lee Young chan in the bottom ninth. To make things a little more interesting, it was 4-3, uh, but uh, the Dinos hung on to win by one run. And the team that won the first game has gone on to take this series in the best-of-five setting about 70% of the time. Um, so Dinos are obviously in a pretty good position to take this series and move on to the next round, especially seeing the first game on the road. It was a pretty big deal for them. Right, so history is with the Dinos. But also, you wouldn't bet against last year's champions, the SSG Landers, either. So it'll be really interesting to see how this series develops. OK, let's jump over to domestic football now. In K-League 1, the upstart Kwangju FC blanked Ulsan Hyundai FC 1-0 for their second straight win over the first-place club. It also denied Ulsan the title for now. Jiho, 
uh, Gwangju have been one of the most surprising teams so far this season, right? And they could even grab the number two spot before it's all said and done. Yeah, they've been one of the pleasant surprises in the K-League. This is the first season that they're back in the K-League 1 after getting promoted from the K-League 2 last year. And if you recall, just based on recent history, teams that get, called, teams that get uh, promoted, they don't typically do this well in their first season back in the big leagues. But mm. it's, been, it's been a different case for Gwangju. Uh, they've been playing well, especially particularly of the uh, last six, seven matches. Um, and, you know, one of those matches included a 2-0 win over Ulsan in September. And they, were, they went back at it once again, beating Ulsan 1-0 on Saturday in the first of the fine, final five matches of the season after the uh, 12 K-League 1 clubs were divided into the two tiers. We've got final A for the top six and the final B for the bottom six. So the teams will close out their season by playing opponents within their group uh, once each. Uh, so they play five matches now, one down, four to go. And Gwangju enjoyed their second win over Ulsan after, like I said, beating them 2-0 last month. Now, with Ulsan, they're winless in three matches. But also more, more, I guess, worryingly for them, they have not scored in those three matches at all. Uh, one draw and two losses there. So uh, uh, kind of a, a difficult uh, spot for Ulsan to be in. Now, with second-place Pohang Steelers, they took a 1-1 draw against Incheon Friday, which meant Ulsan could have actually clinched the spot, uh, clinched the title, their second straight title, by beating Gwangju next, the, the very next night. But now, as things stand, uh, they're going to have to wait at least another match week to clinch the title. Uh, they've not looked as dominant as they did maybe last year, especially in recent weeks. But uh, uh, they're still in the driver's seat as far as uh, winning the uh, 2023 KL1 one title. Right, they are eight points ahead. So it's unlikely they would collapse so badly that they let the title slip. But it hasn't perhaps uh, been as dominant as initially expected from Ulsan, especially in the last stretch now. Still, it's within their grasp. Meanwhile, for Kwangju, if they can keep it up, they could be heading to the AFC Champions League for the first time in their history as well, which would be quite incredible. Uh, we'll see what unfolds. Let's shift our attention now to women's golf because the Korean-Australian star Minji Lee won a tournament on Korean soil for the first time on Sunday. She defeated Korean-American Alison Lee in a playoff to win the BMW Ladies' Championship in Paju. Minji said it was uh, extra special to win in Korea because her parents are from here. Can you tell us how it went down? Yeah, so her parents and she played in front of uh, her extended family and friends. Uh, you know, Minji was born in Australia, but obviously both of her parents are from Korea. Uh, she has retained, I guess, her Korean name, right, instead of uh, using uh, any English name uh, for her professional career. And she led Alison Lee by two shots with two holes to play. But Alison forced the playoff with, with birdies on those final two holes, while Minji managed only pars over the same stretch. So they went back to the 18th hole for the first playoff hole. Uh, Minji Lee made birdie to Alison Lee's par. And this was a rematch of 2012 U.S. Girls Junior Final. Uh, in a match play setting when both players were teenagers. Uh, Minji won back then and repeated the feat over, over her longtime friend and rival, uh, this time for the 10th career LPGA title for herself. And Minji, like I said, got to play in front of her parents, uh, her extended family that live in Korea. And also, uh, this been a, it has been a pretty good uh, a month for the Lee family. Her younger brother, Minu Lee, won on the Asian tour last week for, her, uh, <laughs> for his uh, third career professional title. So great stretch of golf for the Lee family. 
And Minji said he was, she was very proud of his, uh, her brother uh, to be doing so well for himself on the tour. Yes, uh, she said, though, even though she wouldn't tell it to his face, I saw in an interview. (laughs) Yes, so the uh, brother and sisters uh, coming out on top over the last couple of weeks. Pretty incredible family to see. Okay, finally, let's wrap up with basketball because the new Korean Basketball League season is underway as well now. One of the main headlines so far is KCC. They won their first home game on Sunday in their new city of Busan. That's after relocating from Chunju over the off-season. So, Jiho, Busan may be known as a baseball town, but I guess it can also be a fun basketball city if the team does well there. Yeah, you know, I mean, this city used to have a basketball team, a pretty good one at that, with KT, who's since moved on to Suwon. Um, but also, their home gym, uh, Sajik Gymnasium, can be actually a pretty scary place for visiting teams. It's the biggest in the league, with a full capacity of 12,000, and right on top of the players. And KCC made a very strong first impression on their, I guess, uh, you know, new home, beating the Samsung Thunders 106 to 100 in the season opener on Sunday, uh, before an official sellout crowd of 8,780 fans. This is the first KBL game with over 8,000 fans in 17 years, and six players scored in double figures, led by Ho Wung with 23. And, of course, KCC left the city of Jeonju after 22 years there, a very successful 22 years, I might add. And they, they gave Busan a team after the city had lost the KT to Suwon a few years ago. And the KCC won the League, league Cup t- tournament before the regular season began. And the things are looking pretty good in Busan with, um, I guess, the baseball season with a lot of Giants being done for the, for the time being. Now, according to the KBL, the six games on the opening weekend drew... Uh, 5,073 fans on average, and that's the highest figure in six years. Right, so it looks like it could be a force to be reckoned with now they are in a new home once again. OK, we'll wrap it up there. Jiho, thank you for those updates. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. OK, thanks for having me. Hello everyone, this is Chelis Yang Sung-won, Artistic Director of Music in Pyeongchang Festival. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time for our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's great to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what's the first article that you have for us? So there is an exhibition called Ari Arirang. It opened two weeks ago at the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, Germany. And the aim of the exhibition is to commemorate the 140th anniversary of diplomatic relations between Korea and Germany. About 120 Korean items from the Prussian Cultural Heritage Foundation are on display, but it was revealed on Monday that some of the artefacts had to be removed due to reports of inaccuracies in the displayed information. That's what Kim Hae-yeon's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald is all about. 
Okay, that sounds rather unfortunate. Can mm. you walk us through what items were removed and why? Well, first is a, photo- a pho- photograph titled "Water Bearer from the Joseon Era." The article explains that it depicts a woman holding a jar on her head with exposed breasts. It's actually included in the article, so you can see the picture for yourself. There is an issue regarding who took the photo. Originally, it was believed that a man named Adolf Fischer took the photo while he was visiting Korea in 1905. He was working at the German embassy in Beijing at the time. But through research, they now believe that a Japanese photographer took the photo in the mid 1890s. The National Museum of Korea said on Monday that the picture was published later on by the Japanese-run Gyeongsang Photo Studio in 1907 as part of a compiled album of Korean customs. So the photograph was pulled, as well as a few other artifacts. Right, that photo was just one example yes. of several that were pulled. Was there a reason given as to why uh, th- these sorts of issues were only discovered now? So it seems. Like the issue started back in March, the Humboldt Forum sent a list of the artifacts' information to the National Museum of Korea and the Korean Cultural Center in Germany to review what is written. But the list was not complete at the time. The photograph I just mentioned was not included, as well as an item that was described as a Korean hairpin from the early 20th century. But it turns out it was a traditional Japanese woman's hair accessory. The museum was able to get a hold of photos once the exhibition opened a couple of weeks ago, and that's when the mistake was found. Mm, as I said, it's unfortunate. Hopefully, it was just a, a mistake, right. but it sounds like uh, more cooperation is needed with Korean sure. and Korean experts to ensure uh, that there aren't any mistakes uh, in the future for these sorts of exhibitions. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's continue on to the next article. What else have you found in tomorrow's newspapers? Next is Jun Ji-hye's article in the national section of the Korea Times. It's about a program that the Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education will hold at the end of this month to early next month in Malaysia, Japan, and Indonesia. The education office plans to go to these three countries and provide teaching materials and other instructional resources to Korean education centers and residents. Right, I understand this isn't the first time for the education office. Office to do this sort of uh, program, right? That's right. It has been carrying out the program every year since 2015 to help overseas institutions that need support. This time around, $27,000 worth of teaching materials, Korean textbooks, and the traditional Korean clothing handbook will be given to the Korean Education Center in Malaysia. Handbooks will also be sent to the Korean Education Center in Nagano, Japan. For Indonesia, the education office uh, officials will provide voluntary services there. Right, so they're going to go themselves yes. to Indonesia. Wow, that's uh, quite impressive. What type of voluntary work will they do in Indonesia? Uh, things like teaching traditional Korean games to the children of Korean nationals living in the country, visiting the homes of low-income families of second-generation Korean Indonesians, and helping improve their living conditions and a lot more. So yeah, overall, it sounds like a nice program that could help people. Indeed, it does. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up there for morning edition preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. We wrap up our show there for today as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.